Hello, everybody. This is Noah, and welcome to Change Talk, a podcast where I have conversations with people who are thinking about change and are open to talking about it. In this week's episode, I speak with Ashley Fairbanks. Ashley is an Anishinaabe artist, organizer, designer, and digital strategist and the creative director for the 100% campaign. She's worked on everything from municipal to statewide electoral campaigns, most recently even working as creative director for Julian Castro's presidential campaign. Ashley grew up in South Minneapolis and is a graduate of the University of Minnesota, where she studied Ojibwe language and political science. She's well regarded on social media for her emotionally stirring posts. She came on to Change Talk for help getting reconnected to writing, something she feels that the pandemic has stolen from her. Thanks for listening, enjoy, and may Ashley's Change Talk, in some small way, inspire your own. Please note that this podcast is not therapy. Seek professional help if needed. We have another guest today that I'm very excited to speak with, to speak to, to learn from. Her name is Ashley Fairbanks. Hello, Ashley. Hello. Tell us about yourself. Well, hello. Uh, Buju, Asanawikwe, Indigenous. My name's Ashley Fairbanks. Uh, in Ojibwe, my name's Asanawikwe, which means she's made of stone. Your name? Can you can yes. you say that slower for us? <laughs> Asanawikwe. Asanawikwe. Yes. Perfect pronunciation on the first time. Asinawikwe, it means made of stone. Yes, in Ojibwe. In Woman Ojibwe. made of stone, yes. Woman made of stone. So, so what does that mean for you and to you? Um, well, in Ojibwe culture, we're not given names until we're, we're around for a few years. Um, so my way, my namesake, uh, she dreamt my name, which is like the way that we get them. They come to us in dreams. Um, and... I was a really stubborn little baby, and so she named me uh, Asinawikwe, uh, she, like woman made of stone. Um, and it's really beautiful to me for that reason that like, I, I like that I'm stubborn and persistent and I fight for things, um, but also because my grandmother, um, her name in Ojibwe was Asinikwe, and the woman who gave me my name didn't know that, um, mm. but we just ended up with these connected names, and I love that. So, so a name means a lot to you, because, it, and I'm struck by... You, because I have asked people what their name means in the past, and it means a lot in the same in sort of the Hebrew language that the name is a very important meaning about who we are, how we want to live. Um, it just has a sense of personal identity, and, and it seems like it's that for you. Yeah, I think my Ojibwe name especially is important to me because uh, Ashley, my, my English name, is the most common name of my birth year. <laughs> <laughs> and so I really, really never felt really? connected to that. Yeah, <laughs> for like 10 years in America, Ashley was the most common name. Oh my uh, gosh. So it's nice to have a name that I'm connected to that, that is you know, personal and actually feels, feels like me. Talk to me about, about the importance of tradition and lineage. And what does that mean for you uh, today? Living in the 21st oh. century, you come from, from something that 
for me, I, I can only understand from my cultural level that importance, and I want to understand from your perspective. Yeah, I have a really interesting uh, personal story, I guess, around identity because I'm multiracial. I'm half Ojibwe and half Norwegian. Um, and my Norwegian side, um, actually, my grandparents immigrated here as children. So they've only been here uh, for, you know, uh, two generations and uh, very con connected still to family back in Norway. Um, so I grew up with two very distinct cultural identities. Um, and my Ojibwe family is very large. I have 48 first cousins. Oh my gosh. Um, and I pretty much only grew up with that side of my family. Um, so that part of my culture has always been very important to me. And I also, I grew up in Minneapolis, which is one of the largest urban American Indian populations in the country. Um, and it's very situated in one neighborhood. So I grew up in a neighborhood where being around native people was the norm. Um, and it's a distinct identity. It's different than like living on a reservation um, or in a rural community. We have a very large urban native population and that was how I grew up. So I think all of that is really important to me and in the work that I do uh, in cultural organizing work and social change work, I think it's incredibly important for us to have a solid foundation of who we are and like the world that we wanna live in. And for me, uh, that, that's like the basis of everything I do is thinking about how I want to live in a world that would be familiar to the values of my ancestors. Wow, and, and how do you balance those two dimensions of yourself? You live in an urban American city and yet you're trans, far transcendent of that. Your lineage far transcends that. Your relationship both on both sides, Norwegian and and uh, uh, what, what's the term that you like to use for this particular, like I, I have, you know, in Canada, we say, um, we say indigenous. I don't know what, how, how you prefer for me to, to refer. Yeah, I mean, I, in general, I like indigenous, but I guess more specifically, I'm Anishinaabe and, you know, all of our cultures are very distinct. So yeah, I, so, like, I feel like it's say so superficial, right? <laughs> to say yeah, yeah. indigenous. Yeah, so I, I generally say, like, if I'm talking about all Indigenous people on the continent, I'll say Indigenous. Right. Um, you know, it's really political, too, in the U.S. and Canada, too. Like, people, uh, you know, Canada now say Aboriginal even more than they say Indigenous. Right. Um, but in, in America, I think most people as a broad sector prefer, you know, Native American or Indigenous. Uh, in Minnesota, we say American Indian a lot, too, um, because yeah. of the political, the political history of the American Indian movement. Right. Um, but I, I like to be called the tribe I'm from, which is Anishinaabe. Anishinaabe, okay. So in terms of the Anishinaabe, growing up now, you're living in the 21st century and you're balancing your identity with Anishinaabe and living in an urban city. So how do you balance the tradition versus the sort of progressive, in some way, living in the, in the US um, and how those conflict with each other in any way, shape or form? I'm just incredibly grateful that I grew up in a community where I didn't have to figure that out for myself. Uh, my grandparents were actually displaced from the reservation uh, following World War II. So my, my parents, like my dad grew up completely within Minneapolis. Uh, he was born there and grew up there. Um, so I came into a pretty well-established culture, um, which is a blend primarily of Ojibwe and Dakota people in Minneapolis. Um, with, like I said, a very strong political history uh, starting in 1968 when the American Indian Movement was formed. 
Um, so because of that, Minneapolis is a very distinct place where we have a lot of cultural resources um, and like large cultural hubs like an American Indian Center and our own schools, uh, a lot of focus on language. Like my college, my undergraduate college had the first American Indian Studies program in the whole nation. Wow. Um, so for me, it was never felt like they were really conflicting because there was kind of already that that built mix, right? So like there was already the urban native community to be between like city culture and reservation culture. Um, right. And I really didn't learn more. Like my sister actually lives on the reservation. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time at, there with her when I was growing up too. Um, but I've learned a lot more in the work I've done as an older person, uh, really thinking about the privilege that people like native people in the city have versus the lack of resources that folks on the reservation have uh, and how to really be mindful of how it's so much easier for people from the city to take up space um, than people who are from rural communities. Right. So you had a, a very unique experience in growing up with access to the reservation in a very intimate way and also growing up in an urban city. Yeah. So how has that impacted your identity today? How do you spend your time given this, this type of history that you have? Um, well, for a long time, so for most of my 20s, I'm in my early 30s now, but for most of my 20s, I worked in the Native community in Minneapolis. Uh, like I said, we have a lot of our own cultural hubs. I worked at an art gallery and community development organization. Uh, I helped start a Native farmer's market and do all that kinds of work right in our community. Mm. Um, and then I got into, I've always done like political work I got more into political and policy work as I got older. Um, so doing work, you know, with and on behalf of our community at the policy level um, and higher levels of government, and then working on electoral campaigns so that we can actively work to change those things. Um, so that's kind of taken me all over the place. Um, and I've worked on like basically every level campaign from city council, mayor, park board, to, you know, congressional, presidential, and Senate races. Wow. And what's been the most eye-opening or meaningful part of that work for you? Um, working in electoral politics, it's crazy because there is almost zero representation of Native people. You can count on one hand, probably, the amount of Native people on the continent who do work that I do uh, in the kind of political levels that I work in, um, <laughs> which is crazy. You know, people ask, like, about it. And I'm like, oh, I can tell you the names of other people who do this work. Um, <laughs> you know, from all the way in Canada, like up in Vancouver, um, and in Alaska, uh, all the way down to, to Florida. <laughs> so there's not a lot of us. It's small. Um, and also the, the other big thing for me is um, I grew up mostly like in poverty and working class. And I've done, you know, I've been very lucky and I've done well for myself. And it's always amazing to be in like middle class and upper middle class spaces and realize how few people there have any idea about what it's like to not have money. Mm. Uh, and that's really what kind of keeps me doing the work is like being like, oh, if I'm not here to say this is a ludicrous way of trying to talk about poor people or help poor people, there really wouldn't be that voice at the table a lot of the time. Right, because you're already saying that you are one of a handful of people involved at the policy level. And, and so when I'm hearing that, it's like, there's a lot of pressure on you. Like you have a, like a very distinct role, unique voice to, to provide. 
that you feel a, a strong sense of responsibility that if not you, then, then who? Yeah, like there's, there's no um, successful Native professional I know who goes to work and goes home and like lives a normal life. Like basically everyone I know um, is, you know, very involved in activism, very involved in the arts and like is doing all of this at once because there's so few things, uh, so few people who are able to do that work um, who are kind of above the, the bottom rung of Maslow's ladder, right? right. That like we, we really, um, there's, there is a lot of pressure um, to consistently be the one doing the work with your community and also trying to refrain from feeling like you're some sort of savior. It's really easy to adopt right. like, a white savior kind of mi mindset uh, and forget that you're part of those, those people. And that <laughs> they actually, <laughs> a lot of them might not have like a formal education or might not have resources, but they're like, they're smart and valid and wonderful people. Mm. And a lot of times they know the solutions better than folks who are the experts on the thing. Right. Cause they're on the ground. I wanted to ask you or explore one, one dimension of this that, and again, I'm, I'm going to apologize in advance if I, if I say um, or don't communicate well, my understanding, um, I, I admit having lack of understanding. And so that's, I guess, sort of part of this is just trying to understand how conflicted of an identity do you feel in the sense, you know, knowing the historical dimension of this, you mentioned you only go as far back, for example, as your grandparents being kicked off of a reserve or forced out and having a strong feeling about what happened to the world that was and now where you are now living and integrating and being a part of the continual development of the United States. Uh, how, how do you balance the, those two parts of yourself feeling where, what happened to where I come from and, and also integrating that you're living in a new place and contributing to the well-being and development of that place? I think that that is one of the hardest things to balance in all of the work. Like part of me would love to move to my home community and like live off the grid and like harvest wild rice and harvest berries and do all those things. Um, and there are people from my tribe who do that. And I respect them so much. The work they do is incredibly important. Um, they're developing a lot of like indigenous technology, basically like seed saving and redeveloping agricultural forms and all different kinds of cool things. Um, I wish I could do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> the pace of my life has never really been suited to do that. Um, and I think the hardest thing for me is the reality that like colonization is not going to end. Um, you know, no one like Americans are not packing up and going back to Europe or back to any, wherever people come from, you know, um, people are here to stay. And right. so I feel like I have to fight for how we interact with, with the rest of the population because I have the skills to navigate those worlds. Um, yeah. I honestly like would rather less people from my tribe have to deal with the trauma of what it's like to be in a lot of these spaces. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I talk to young people, I wouldn't encourage a lot of them to get active and do the work that I do um, on a policy level. Uh, and I think it's important to keep a balance too like to, to do both things. So to make sure that I get to time where I get to go and be on the reservation with my family um, or like just slow down a bit. Right. Uh, because 
it's important that that we don't lose either one of those perspectives in my in my opinion right so so you you have a commitment to the future clearly well yeah i mean i have five nieces and I don't know. There's also, there's a lot of people who are more like integrationists who are like, we should like give up more of our culture and go learn like how to be, how to go to the best colleges and how to do whatever. Um, you know, I could have like went to an Ivy league school, but I chose to go to a state school so I could learn Ojibwe. Um, you know, so there's things like that, right. Of the balance of like, I don't think that we should abandon our culture and our ways at all. I think that those are the things that are actually the solutions for a lot of the problems our community face um, lie in like being more attached to those cultures. Mm. And also, uh, so I mean, one of the dominant movements and like native activism right now um, is talking about getting our land back, right? And some people might look at that and say like, oh, that's a fantasy, like, but it's actually not, especially in Canada, uh, but in Northern Minnesota where I'm from, you know, on our reservations, Native people own less than 10% of a lot of the land that we live on. Um, so like our reservation might be, let's just say 100,000 acres, we only as a tribe own 1,000, right? And that's called checkerboarding. It happened back in the 1880s. Native people were intentionally robbed of our land. Um, and so I, I think that one of the ways we can talk about how do we get land back is first starting just about getting that land on our on our reservations back um you know like that's what we were promised that the government we should have that in perpetuity so like let's fight for that you know and so a lot of that comes from like buying land back from cabin owners or from hunting land owners um the forestry like the u.s forestry department owns a lot of native land they should give uh-huh. that back to us they, they profit off of our land and we don't get into those profits that's very real like that. that's a very tangible piece of yeah. policy yeah, exactly. I mean, and there's a lot of things too about like giving tribes the resources that they need to actually proper gov- properly govern our own lands. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I try to really like d- stand on both sides of the divide of like more radical political thought. Um, I-, I love being pushed by people who are like, all white people should go home. <laughs> you know, I love, like, I want to hear their voices because there is pain that is real in that argument um, that needs to be heard and understood. And then there's also people who are like, if we all just go to college, to go, if we all go to Harvard and become attorneys, we'll be fine. And like, none of those things are true, right? Neither of those things are going to work Assimilation for versus... Yeah, and I mean, and it, it, for me, like, you know, my, my grandparents were in boarding school. Um, my grandma was beaten for speaking Ojibwe. Mm. I, and I got to go to college for Ojibwe. So <laughs> it's like, <laughs> there, there is strides we've made and fought for. Yeah, um, but I think it's so important to keep on keep on pushing, um, especially because you know there's we're at a weird place, especially now in America, where people think about casinos when they think about Native people, yeah. but like obviously we have you know communities that have been decimated by the opioid ec- epidemic. You know, uh, Native women are the most likely to be murdered and 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 kidnapped and sexually assaulted, uh, both in the U.S. and Canada, um, and so there's just there's so much we have to keep fighting for. Yeah, and so we, what you're saying is it's not a, it's not, those problems are not gonna go away because you assimilate, integrate, and forget who you are. It's the problems that are going on are both systemic, you're dealing with policy, but it's also maintaining your distinct, unique voice um, of what, what your community stands for, the values that they stand for. Do you wanna share with us just something, a, a, 
something that I may, that we may not know, just a, a teaching, a value, a way of seeing the world that really resonates with you from your community? I think the, the primary thing I've tried to build like my organizing and activism work off of is an idea of collectivism uh, that is present in the Native community um, in, our, in our teachings and our ways uh, that is not present in Western society. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what, what capitalism and heteropatriarchy have taken from not just indigenous people, but from, you know, uh, pre-Christian like, pre white people in Europe, before whiteness was a thing, right? There was pre-capitalist, pre-Christian societies where collectivism flourished the same way it flourished in pre-Columbian, you know, indigenous societies. Um, but like whiteness robs all people of that. Capitalism robs all people of that, right? Um, you know, before the chattel slave trade, uh, you know, African peoples had that in Africa. Like, so I think it's just important that we remember that it has not been too long since our ancestors were living in very collective ways. Um, and that idea that like we really need each other to survive, right? That's like the core philosophy in my book of, of what is <laughs> the, the downturn of the planet has really been about this idea that like it's, you know, us, us versus them or me versus you. Um, it's fighting to see who can succeed the most and have the most money. Um, and that's just not how I think, you know, that's not how my, two, two, like before my grandparents, you know, two generations ago, three generations ago, uh, people were much more interdependent. Yes. And that can be like simple things or just like living together, living yeah. together, having five families live in, you know, one bigger compound or, you know, four people living in a house instead of four people living in four separate apartments. No, I, I hear that. And, and uh, um, one of the, my, my influential religious or spiritual leaders, Jonathan Sachs, uh, he's a rabbi in, in the UK. He talked, his, his book that just came out on morality um, is, is restoring the common good in divided times that, that we've actually moved far more into I culture. And my, I can speak for myself just how important we collective culture is as, as an Orthodox Jew, um, being connected to community, the, 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 the uh, social services, the, the, the sort of speak welfare that's embedded into the system itself, um, just people looking out for each other. And I, and I think that we, we lose a lot of that uh, in, in, in modern individualistic culture. I'm a part of a community uh, that's greater than myself. And, and I think people have lost that a little bit. Well, and the power of like capitalism and marketing are so strong, right? Like that's so strong in our culture now around the world, like globalism has pushed that to basically every society on earth, right? But I was reading a book once about, uh, about childbirth and it's talking about how like the four doctors and hospitals at, at like an average birth for any woman on the planet, that, that 10 women would be present, you know? Mm -hmm. Like that this is like a, a community experience of bringing a child into the world. And I just think about that now and how foreign that concept would feel to most folks and it's sad because we're really, like I said, like pretty much less than a hundred years away from that in most places in the world. Um, and so it's just like, how do we, obviously when we're not interacting as much with each other, we don't see as much reason to do good by each other. Um, and that's why it's just, I think, so critical that we rebuild that interdependency, like the idea that like, I really need you to thrive in order for me to thrive. Yeah. And, and so that's sort of something that is embedded in, in the wisdom of your tradition. Yeah, and so in Ojibwe culture, there's a seven grandfather teachings. 
and and most of them are really um they're about personal traits but they're also just about the way that you interact with other people you know one of the primary values of our culture is humility mm-hmm. and like greed and humility don't go well together you know there's no re- reason to hoard resources if you think that you're just part of the community it, it, it's seeing beyond just yourself even growing up in in the urban community you know I grew up in a community that was mostly single moms. And so just the way that our moms worked with each other to make sure that we were all fed and taken care of, um, you know, one mom like watching us all each night so other moms could go grocery shopping or get things done um, or, you know, us all eating dinner together. Right. Those were things that I grew up with that were like, um, I grew up in a pretty hippie community in Minneapolis. <laughs> so like, uh, you know, it was just like, I love that. I love the idea of us just living a little bit more simply and, and sharing resources. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing some of that. I'm, there's a lot more I, I, I'm sure we could get into, but I just appreciate uh, you articulating how it is that you are trying to, both on a policy perspective, on a personal level, professional level, just sounds like this is a big part of your life. Thank you for sharing. I'm, I, of course, will link all the stuff that uh, people can learn more about what you're up to and what you're working for and on. Um, so let's move into, into change talk. Talk to me a little bit about something that you want to improve in your life. Um, well, we talked a lot about how, uh, how much pressure there is on, you know, on native folks to like give and do as much as we can. And I work in the electoral world of politics, which is a high pressure, fast paced world. Um, and I've worked on political campaigns for the past four years. What kind of campaigns have you worked on? So I moved to San Antonio to work for Julian Castro when he ran for president. Um, I worked for Ilhan Omar. I was her communications and digital director uh, in her run for Congress. And before that, I worked for a woman named Erin Murphy, who ran for governor in Minnesota uh, in 2018. Um, so anyway, it's just been a long time of working like 100 hour weeks. Oh, my gosh. Uh, pretty consistently and I um, lost myself quite a bit in that work um, it's on so basically since 2016 I could tell you which days of each year I've had off oh my god um, <laughs> so how have you lost have... Your, how have you lost yourself like what it just the world just shrinks to work and like everything else is gone uh, yeah like work and like probably like my like my closest relationships um, thankfully, a lot of my friends work in politics too, so like those things have been maintained because we all work together. Um, but just like my one primary example is uh, up until COVID, um, being stuck at home because I used to travel a lot for work. Um, I probably had like not made myself a proper meal in like two years. Oh my gosh! <laughs> like you know, I would. I'm like, not laughing with you. Grocery. I'm not joining you in that laugh because I don't think that's funny. <laughs> No, it's a dark, it's a dark laugh, definitely. Like yeah. it, it, it was just like that basic stuff of like slowing down enough to, I mean, just leaving the office before 10 p.m., you know? Um, and but why? why? <laughs> like, why did you do that? There's like a really strong culture around working like that in electoral work. Um, it's, it's kind of like a, a, a meme almost about our work is that it's just nonstop. Yeah. Um, and there's you like a pride it. in it. Yeah, there's like a pride in it. You know, people are very proud that like they uh, work all the time. Um, 
And also, so in 2017, um, we ran people for mayor and for city council in Minneapolis, and I was working on like three campaigns um, and then helping coordinate a larger thing. So it's just like, I want to do so much. I have so many ambitions around the work I want to do that like, I just love to, like, I, I mean, I really do. I love my work so much um, and it takes so much joy in it that it's hard to forget that it's hard to remember that there's things outside of that. Yeah. Um, COVID has been, you know, very fortunate for me in that way, but it's forced me to slow down. Um, and that like, I've, I had to like learn what people did with time. Cause I didn't really remember, you know, like what it was like to have free time. Um, so what's that so contrast been like for you? Like insane, insane night and day. Uh, you know, I, I am, have taken up a lot of hobbies this year. I have, I mean, I cook almost all my meals for both me and my partner. Um, I've learned to sit still a little bit. And I've also, um, like on a mental health basis, I've, um, I got diagnosed with ADHD this year. Because uh, I discovered that like one of the coping mechanisms I was using to deal with kind of a lifelong battle with ADHD that so I was actually, I was diagnosed when I was in seventh grade with ADHD. And my mom was like, my mom just tried to like, like wish away the diagnosis. I was a really smart kid. I did well in school. So she kind of was just like, you don't need to be on drugs for that. Everyone puts their kids on drugs. That's wrong. Um, so we kind of just like rejected the diagnosis. Um, because I didn't have hyperactive ADHD. I had, I have inattentive ADHD. So I wasn't like a troublemaker in school. I just like, um, I have to wait for things to be absolutely stressful in order to get them done. Like there has to be external pressure. So I'll just, you know, in college, I got through all of college, a double major, uh, by like waiting until the day my paper was due and finishing right. the whole thing that day. Um, right. And so like this year, having to slow the pace that I'm working at made me realize if there's not that stress, I actually can't get things done. Oh, wow. Um, and so I was struggling so much with my work because it's like, I have all the time in the world and there's no, there's no pr like stressful deadlines. And so I just like, wasn't able to get things done. So what and do I, I do with myself? Cracking. <laughs> yeah. And I would like, I get very hyper-focused on like absolutely meaningless tasks. Right. Uh, you know, finding the perfect shower curtain. And I'd spend like two days out in the <laughs> world, like, or like, you know, looking online uh, for like the perfect shower curtain. And then the, yeah. that thing would fix my problems. Um, <laughs> so anyway, thankfully uh, I got put on ADHD medication yeah. and that has helped tremendously. I've put it some personal organizing systems in place. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been a, a world of difference. Amazing. So we were, you were getting into the change talk and then we started talking a little bit about the differences between pre-COVID and post-COVID work for you, this 100-hour work world, not proper meals, all this sort of running around constantly. And now it's sort of the inverse of that. You've had time to cook, more time at home, more time to, to actually plan like more effectively and longer-term planning. And you've gone on medication. So you were going to get into sort of what you wanted to work on, what you wanted to oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm focusing you back very gently. <laughs> Um, yeah. So the thing that I really want to improve, what I just said, that was an important backstory for that. Yes. So I have tremendous amounts of pressure on my stuff, on myself to constantly perform. And so I really want to write a book 
I'm a very active writer. Usually I have not been during COVID. Um, it's always been a goal of mine to write a book. Um, and I feel like I'm finally in the place to do that. So I want to make room for more routine writing, but I also want to do it in a way that is about like the joy and fulfillment of writing, not just about starting another project to keep myself bu busy to facilitate more stress in my life because stress makes me feel comfortable. Right. You need, you like stress. Stress, <laughs> is, stress. stress is a safe zone for you. Yeah. When you're, when you're moving nine miles, like nine miles a minute, right. You don't have to think about your problems. You don't have to process things. You just get to move right through all of it. And then the, the trauma of it doesn't impact you until, you know, you're on the ground completely broken. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what something you said, not directly related, but for me, I've just noticed that the, so Saturday, Friday night to Saturday night is Sabbath. So I'm, off the grid and in, in, in a very much more relaxed, calm state, non-working state, non-striving state. But Sundays I'm finding in Monday to Friday, I have strong purpose driven time, like very focused, lots of responsibility. Sunday is the sort of middle ground. And I, I find myself like, it's stressful to not have exactly organized what I'm doing on that day to like not have a plan is stressful. Um, yeah. It's less stressful to have a, a plan that's kind of tight um tight plans going you know yeah i don't really know how to do nothing like i don't really yeah. understand the concept and then i've gotten better at that during quarantine and then that gives me like anxiety of like am i just gonna become a person who watches the bachelorette all day oh no instead of a person who like accomplishes things in my life i don't mean and oh no because you can watch the bachelorette <laughs> i have no problem i mean i don't know enough about it to tell you if i have a problem with it so so yeah, yeah you want to you, you're, you're very very you 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 want to make time to write and you don't want to do it to just make it another task that you do for the purposes of stress management by bringing in stress to make you less stress. I, that's, that is super interesting to me, I, I, I find, but I feel like people will get it. Um, but so you want to write. Um, so just off the bat, what is writing for you? You want to write a book. What do you want to write about? Um, so I used to write every single day on Facebook, basically about various social issues. Um, and where I've really found my groove and built an audience has been writing about social issues in a way that's very emotionally vulnerable and connected um, to really give people a time and like words to connect how they're processing situations. So I started writing a lot when uh, the Black Lives Matter movement really like started in Minneapolis, like, um, after Mike Brown was murdered in, in Missouri. Um, and I was just like, I wanted to be honest and open about how I was feeling. Uh, and I just kind of like let it all out. I also went through a pretty uh, rough sexual harassment situation at my work mm. and wrote very openly about that. Um, and so when I think about like the, the book I want to write, um, it's funny because like everyone always asked me to write a book and I think they all want me to write something that's very similar to that and I think that might exist that project exists somewhere in my head and like I might do that one day like a series of essays about various things right but what I really want to write about is like native science fiction <laughs> like <laughs> whoa okay what tell me about what does that mean what is that uh I'm really into like Afrofuturism you know this idea that like black writers are writing about a future that like that a lot for indigenous people, for black folks, 
that like the idea of a world that is just to us, like that is uh, fair and and safe and thriving for us, is something that is not something that a lot of our people can conceive of. And so there's this beautiful idea that like we can write a science fiction future that that is that world for us that we can kind of like dream it into being um and so there's a lot of amazing authors you know going back in history all the way with like audrey lord um and octavia butler who were able to like think of this more uh, especially octavia butler like think of this like vision-filled future um of like aliens and like black science fiction right um and so i'm really interested in that with like indigenous people of like what does that world look like that is a is a healthy all the things we were talking about before you know it's healthy for us and it's like our our, our traditions are thriving you know maybe we have like live independently in our land like sovereign from foreign interference um i don't know so that's but you want to explore these ideas through science fiction yes wow and uh, that's very like maybe it's like all native people go to mars you know and we have like an indigenous no you're not you're not don't you want to <laughs> don't you want to reclaim land that you already have that you that, oh, like yeah yeah you know <laughs> maybe we send all the white people to mars no i won't let you do that either <laughs> um uh, and i know you don't i, I hope you're yeah no i'm kidding playful. um but but i think that it's really important to first define what you want to write about it sounds like you know what you want to write about yeah and it's like i don't know i think now i'm just as, as i'm speaking it i'm kind of thinking like that first project the easy project like i've diminished it in my head because i know i could do it so easily and I'm like i want to challenge myself with this other project but i'm like now maybe i just need to do the easy project first <laughs> like the writing do it the, the yeah sort of essay writing separate yeah. entities mini stories that involve both a contemporary analysis on social issues that are happening with your uh, sort of emotional imprint and f personal experiences enmeshed in that. Yeah, and it's like a very like prose heavy kind of thing, you know, it's yep. kind of just like a more intimate take on social issues. Um, yeah, I don't know, I, I just thought of that for the first time of like, maybe what's holding me back in doing the science fiction writing is I know that I should just do this other thing first. <laughs> Right, but either way you want to be writing. That's the bottom yes, line. Yes, 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 yes. And, yes. and the reason right now, so t tell me why you're, why you're not writing right now. Wh what's coming up for you that you're not writing? Um, what gets in the way when you think about writing? What comes up? I am like a real perfectionist about my space. Yeah. So I'll sit and like reorganize my desk for an hour before I start writing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you know or like um i don't know i get thirsty so i get up and go get a glass of water the biggest thing though is probably just like i don't have any routines in my life mm -hmm. and that's something i've also really been trying to, that's kind of the broader thing it's mm -hmm. like i have like basically zero routines and i feel like if i yeah if i had a routine maybe i could like work writing into the routine but mm -hmm. as it is i don't really have like i have a few meetings i have every week for work but like, I don't have any routines independent outside of that. Right. And that, and that means that important valued activities for yourself just don't make their place into your schedule. They don't, yeah. they don't meet there. So, so obviously just having a bit of a destabilized daily routine has, you've just, you've gotten out of the writing too, even though you have time, it's just, you've gotten out of it and it's sort of 
It's, it's just fallen by the wayside and not writing for you. What, what does that do in a positive sense? The fact that you're not writing, how does that serve you? Um, it does take a lot of the pressure off. Um, there's a weird relationship I have with a lot of my audience on Facebook. So I have like 5,000 Facebook friends and probably like 12,000 followers. Wow. Um, and then like another, like, I don't know, like, I think 14,000 followers on Twitter. Wow. Um, and so there came to be kind of a weird thing where I feel like sometimes people were like being very demanding of me to like produce emotion. Like I used to love <laughs> writing because it was like, I could get up and let all this stuff out and then move on with my day. But it was natural for you to do that. Yeah. Yeah. But then it became like, this thing happened, you have to say something about it. Um, and I just like, didn't have it in me. I didn't. And also because of my job, like, so, you know, when I'm working for Ilhan or Julian, like I'm often the one thinking of what they're going to say for tough things that come up. So it's just hard. Well, you're because, constructing responses. Oh yeah. That's part of my job is like working in political communications. Oh my God. Um, and so, you know, you know, let's say someone is shot by the police. It's my job to be the first one to think of, here's the official thing we're going to say. Um, and so wow, it takes away intense. time. That's yeah, it's very intense. Because everything that they say and therefore you say is people are holding on to and like uh, evaluating and dissecting. Yes. That's unbelievable um, pressure. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure. And also like it's not it doesn't get to be me. It's only them. Like they're saying it right. Even though I might have written it or whatever, like they're saying it. Um, so it's, it has to be in their voice and it has to be authentic to, you know, how they're processing things too. Um, so anyway, like I wasn't getting to, to actually process a lot of trauma that was happening in the world because I had to immediately think of what do we say about it instead of what are we feeling about it? Right. You're already manufacturing a response, a, a curated version of what needs to be said that takes away from what made it so strong, which was this gut emotional response to something happening that you really feel connected to. That, that yeah. sort of lost it. And, and so there became this unbelievable pressure to like make the response, make it matter, please your audience of thousands of people who are depending on your response for maybe their processing. Yeah, and, and to make it beautiful. And to make like, that's it beautiful. <laughs> that's the other thing about my writing is like since it's like very prose heavy, it was just a lot of like, I don't know, like it, it couldn't be ugly, you know? And sometimes right. you just like need it to be ugly. So there's just pressure. Pressure to feel a certain, to get the, the message out. Pressure to make it beautiful. So just lots of pressure in, in writing consistently and not only writing for a personal level, but writing for a group, for an audience. Yeah, and then I'll be very honest. I hate saying this, it's disgusting, but oh, no. there also becomes the like, how many likes will it get? How many comments will it get? How many times right. does it get shared? Um, right. So I had a post that went very viral on Twitter last year and like, you know, was shared millions of times. And wow. like, I went on BBC and talked about it. And like, you know, I wrote an, an article in The Guardian and got a <laughs> Twitter post. And so it kind of becomes that like everything that you tweet like becomes like, is it as good as that thing? Is it going to be the breakout? Yeah. Are people going to like this thing if I write it? Like if right. I put it up and it's been up for 10 minutes and no one's liked it, like I just delete it, you know? Like, oh my gosh. Like that pressure. Wanna, yeah. 
so this is and this is a pressure to like make the big impact like and be recognized for it yeah and also it's so embarrassing to say that you know but like we all know it's a reality but like it's still embarrassing to admit it right sure i i hear it but it's like that people are doing that left front and center and you're just again speaking the the truth on the matter in this particular situation so pressure in so many different areas is part of the reason why you don't do it because you don't want to feel so much pressure anything else coming up that that is the reason why you kind of don't go back to this writing um i don't know like i i think i it, a little bit of what i was saying earlier about how like so many people were so kind of like disgusted by how i live with like how much work I do and how much I uh, forsake all things, right? That they're like, you need to learn to do nothing. You need to like learn to be lazy or whatever. And so I kind of like have leaned into that a bit um, with like, oh, okay, I'll go get, you know, breakfast tacos in the morning and like sit and read a book for a while. Um, <laughs> so like, I feel like I'm like performing, not working sometimes. Like, I, yeah. I don't Yeah. I'm a weirdo. <laughs> no, that makes sense. I know I get it. It's like you again, people tell you stop. You were going off the charts in in work and then all of a sudden now you got to you got to say, "Yeah, I go for tacos, you know. I I let loose. <laughs> I I watch the bachelorette or something." Yeah. Yeah. I I do things that us, you know, that normal people do. Um Yes. But right, so that's another another thing. So if you take on this writing thing and all of a sudden you produce articles that mass speeds and levels people are gonna be like oh my gosh you're crazy you're never you're always working blah, blah 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 yeah there's a small thing too which is like there's a very uh i don't know how this is in canada but in minnesota there's a very intense like if you're making yourself the center of attention you're a bad person kind of thing like like um it's all founded actually in like scandinavian thoughts of like you should just blend in with everybody else it's actually called Yantelovin. Uh, the, 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 the law of Yante, the law uh, which of Yante. is like, you're not special is like the primary thing. Uh, you're not special. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. And so there is something that happens when you get a lot of attention for your work, uh, which I have, um, that people just start to kind of be mean to you for like, they start to like hate on you or be mean to you for no reason really. Right. Because other than like jealousy, uh, which sucks a lot and like you know people who you think are your friends sometimes are now like oh well, why did you get that opportunity or why didn't you pass the opportunity on to someone else and there's a struggle right because as like a native woman i know that like i'm saying yes to way less of those opportunities than a lot of um, especially like my white male peers are um so i feel like a certain pressure to like say yes because when the bbc asked me to come on to talk about my tweet you know they didn't ask a lot of native women on that week so like I should say yes and do that thing. Um, and I don't always have the opportunity. Like when a producer comes to you and asks you to be on NPR you know, on the weekend on a big Saturday show, I can't say, oh, just go interview this other person. <laughs> like if they don't interview me, they're probably gonna interview someone else who's like not from an under, underrepresented group, right? Wow. Um, so there's like that negativity too, where it's like- You don't wanna be considered selfish. <laughs> yeah. Which is, again, I totally make sense, even though at the same time, it's like, whoa, look at these opportunities. And people are naturally threatened by success, other people's success. Can you just talk to us then? So 
why, why do you want to deal with writing if it has all these sort of benefits in not writing? Why, why do you want to, why do you want to write? Um, it feels like an important part of my identity. And when I think about the things that bring me joy, when someone really resonates with something that I've written, um, and they tell me about it, they say, I couldn't think of the words to say about this thing. And then I read your, your response and that's what I was feeling. And I didn't know like that to me is like the most powerful feeling. Um, it makes me feel so fulfilled. Um, and I just, I love that. I love, um, being able to like resonate with folks in that way. Um, and, and also like, I just want to do more of it. Like I want to write for bigger pu publications. I've had the opportunity a few times and it's been so cool. And I want to be able to do more of it because I think that my writing deserves a bigger audience. So you want to make an impact. And part of the way that you make an impact aside from all the other work that you're doing is through writing is through speaking emotions onto pieces of paper that other people can feel and then feel more understood. Well, it's really inspiring people to act, right? Like yeah. the primary reason why I write is like to get people to go out and take action in their own communities. To take action. Yeah. Because um, you have a unique voice uh, to be sharing, a unique perspective, and you want to get back into, into bringing that more into the world. Yes. Part of me feels like I have, there's so much bad stuff happening in the world right now. Like this year has been so hard. I feel like I stopped writing in a way so I could stop trying to process everything that was happening. Mm. Like, and so it feels kind of like I stopped going to therapy because I didn't want to talk about it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like my therapy just happens to be a very public thing like that other people get to engage in, but I feel like I'm kind of, I've been ignoring things like around me and I've been doing it like in the name of self care. And part of that has been, beneficial like I do have time to like bake a bunt cake every Sunday you know but um but part of it has been like avoidance right and and you want so there's a therapeutic value that you're going to gain back so part of you wanted to stop doing it maybe because the the reasons the things that were getting in the way so for example you started stopped you stopped writing you were feeling lots of pressure you weren't able to express yourself all the time you were trying to manufacture experiences so much as rather than that rawness that you bring to the table which is kind of was exhausting. there's all these reasons why you didn't want to write and maybe those things um were getting in the way and, and the more you go back to the way that you used to write um get back to the therapeutic value in writing that you have that can allow you to to do the processing so you haven't you've barely been writing through the pandemic yeah, not at all. Oh my gosh. I, wow. I wrote a few things. So yeah, I'm from Minneapolis. And so then the nights of the George Floyd um, uprising, right. I actually flew home. And so I did write a little bit about that, but I haven't written generally about the pandemic now or like during this time. You haven't written about the pandemic. You're from Minneapolis. That is the, the hub of a lot of this, the systemic societal concerns related to racism in the U.S. Yeah. And part of you just doesn't, like you said, you just kind of don't want to process it. Um, yeah. And, but, but maybe you also do because you want to, you want to have that sense of therapeutic value in writing that you, that you've lost. 
Yeah. We're going to get into a plan, a very small, easy plan. But I'm curious, what's the first thing you want to write about right now? Not the nonfiction. I mean, that's a different issue. Yeah. <laughs> I support, sorry, I support the science fiction. I look forward to reading what you have to say. But what is like the, back to this sort of Ashley soul stirring, emotional, emotionally filled, therapeutically, you know, strong, resonant writing? What's that going to look like? I think the thing I've been thinking about the most is about our, you know, our elections coming up in just a few days now and about a little bit more than a week and a half. Yes. Um, or just like about a week. <laughs> uh, and, and so many people are like saying that the fate of our country depends on this election, right? And I think that's true in a lot of ways, but it's also like overly simplistic, you know, where people think that like if Joe Biden gets elected, all of our problems solve magically solved. all of our problems. <laughs> Yeah, putting a lot of faith in one person. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, and like as as like an indigenous person, especially like I know that you know during the Obama administration is like when Standing Rock happened, uh, and people were attacked with fire hoses and dogs and you know like all of those things that happened during the Obama administration, right? So we know that like Joe Biden's not going to fix all of our problems. <laughs> like it's critical that we. But it's a dream, that, you know, right? It's a dream yeah. that people have. Well, and one of the things I fear is that, like, if Joe Biden wins the election, you have a lot of, like, pretty comfortable, privileged, middle-class white folks who are, like, the core of my audience, um, <laughs> who are going to be like, oh, okay, we did good work, and we got him elected, and this is, that time is over. It's, like, behind us, you know? Right, and right. so I just want to make sure that people feel catalyzed to do work after the election, no matter what the results are, that will continue, like, our fight for justice, right? Um, and to recognize that, like, no matter who is in the White House, marginalized people are still, like, going to need folks to fight with them. This is just a foundation of something. It is not the work itself. Yeah. And this and so, will, so much of the work we have to do is, like, not about p politics, right? Like, right. it's about, like, what we were talking about earlier with, like, collectivism of, like, sharing soup with your neighbors, you know? Uh, right. In some COVID-friendly way, I guess. <laughs> so it sounds like you have ammunition. and the more you get back to the why you want to write in the first place and to move away from the reasons that you didn't like writing anymore the same way could be really helpful. Um, in terms of a plan, and the way I try to end these episodes is just something tangible and real that represents this bigger value that you have of writing. So whether it means that you're setting aside 15 to 20 minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, what is a plan that you could do that if I asked you, because I follow up with people, are they following through with their change talk? What would be a plan that you feel you can commit to? Um, I think I want to commit to posting something, like writing something on Facebook every day and leaving it up no matter what engagement it gets. Whoa. Hold on. Every day? Can we start? Well, I mean, the, every day is what I used to do. I and can't so, like, responsibly, I like, <laughs> no. I, Fine. I, you are you. You are you. But like, what about like once a week? Like a, the thing that's hard for me is like that if I don't do something like every day, I, I don't really know how to hold routine longer than that. I mean, maybe I could like put it on a calendar, I guess. It doesn't need to be an on off switch. <laughs> Please forgive me for like being a little bit like. Firm no, I, it's good. I need, I need people to like, 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 if like you I, it, this is, yeah, this is my whole struggle, right? Is that like, I have like two modes. Right. Right. So I don't know. What's the best way to not do it every day? 
here's my immediate reaction. Are you open to any thoughts they have? Of course. Okay. The first thing is to every other day, let's say, on your okay. phone, just put a reminder that says get back to writing. Like okay. every other every other day or something like that, just a reminder that goes off at, I don't know, 10 in the morning, 11 in the morning, just so it gets in your head, you start to think about it actively. Mm-hmm. And then just set a goal of how much you want to write. Like, could it be one post a week? And so when you see that reminder, it sort of prompts you, oh, I should do a little bit of that today, or I should do a little bit of that tomorrow to get ready for that post. Um, and just like have one post, like a week or something, unless you're like, nope, I'm doing it every day. I can get right back into it, but I want you to actually do it. So that's where I'm wondering, like, what if you did it like once a week, you actually publicly posted something at minimum. I could do that. I can do weekly. The the main problem is, is like the way that the writing happens so naturally is that it just like, I kind of like force it to come and then it comes, you know, like, like I would write every day at eight o'clock in the morning. And right. then that's like when I would just make a post. Um, so it's never something that like I like write in Google Docs and then post later. I couldn't oh, try that. I see. So it's all spontaneous. I wonder then what it would be like on your calendar to put in an hour writing session once a week, and whatever you come up with, you then post. Like in other words, put it on the calendar for once a week. It's in your schedule. It's like having this meeting. It's time to write. Just once a week, it's there, and then you write. And it's spontaneous, it's in the moment, it's what you're feeling, and then it comes out. That sounds great. You think you could do that? I put it on my calendar for Wednesday. Okay, what, Wednesday at what time? 8 a.m. Okay, so Wednesday at 8 a.m. That means that you should have something written, but that, that, that uh, when I look on, on your work, I will see at Wednesday at 8 a.m. that you wrote something, sorry, Wednesday at some point that you wrote something. Yes, it probably should be up by nine. If I oh my gosh. So everyone will, I will see, I will already see. This is cool. Um, so I hope, I hope that it, you do it. I hope that uh, this Wednesday 8 a.m. writing session represents one step in stage for you to get back into that kind of writing that you really value and that other people really value. I'm very excited. I'm excited for you. Um, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on and sharing with us, giving us an imprint of some of the stuff that you think about on a daily basis. Really appreciate your time. I hope this was helpful for you in some way. And, uh, and we look forward to following up. And, we'll, and the thing about your change talk is that we'll see it or we won't. Like, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. It's Z-I-I-B-I-I-N-G. Z-I-I-B-I-I-N-G. Awesome. Thank you so much. Don't forget to follow us on social media to keep updated on all our content. We are at Change Talk Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and at Change Talk Pod on Twitter. Editing for this podcast is done by the lovely Atara Shields Tile. Music and theme song by Hope and Social in their album Yorkshire Electric EP with the song People Change.